Ready graphics? Ready theme? You just interesting about writing television as the years went by, our time for our shows got smaller and smaller because the advertising window got bigger and bigger. We had 22 minutes by the end. Losing six minutes in a sitcom means there's a story development you can no longer take. Hi, this is Lauren Milberger. And this is Jesse Mullins. And welcome to another interview episode. We are so lucky to have the amazing Denise Moss. We have had this in the works for a while now, mm -hmm. scheduling and things like that. So we were so happy that Denise was able to join us as we trail towards the end of season two. Yeah, this is the, the vibrant female powerhouse we were hoping and not disappointed to receive from Denise Moss. This conversation was such a delight. Mm -hmm. uh, there were so many great stories, especially, uh, you will find out, tying into episodes we were about to recap. Yeah, gee, it's funny how that worked out. Hmm. Yeah. But I I left more more obsessed with Denise Moss and, and her career than I did coming in. And that's the glory of these episodes. So I hope you do as well. Yeah, just as a reminder, as though we'll go into it in the episode, this season, Denise and her partner, Cy Duquesne, wrote Subpoena Envy, Whose Garbage Is It Anyway? The Memo That Got Away. In season one, they wrote The Untrinkable Murphy Brown, Moscow on the Potomac, and So He Goes. And then eventually they became, wait for this, I know we've talked about it before, actual members of the writing staff as opposed to freelance hey. for season three, where they wrote Small, Terror on the 17th Floor, Trouble in Sherwood Forest, Rootless People, which is a great episode of Murphy Gets Kidnapped, and Brown and Blue. They've also written on Frasier and Roseanne and just hearing Denise's take and experience and stories. I really think you're going to like this interview. I agree. Let us know. Definitely. You can join us on social media at Murphy Brown Pod all over the interwebs, as well as on our website mm -hmm. at murphybrownpod.com. Definitely leave us a review if you enjoyed this interview and hopefully we can bring you more. Enjoy. Enjoy. Will the mystery guest please sign in? This is audio, so you're not going to see it. Uh, but uh, this is Denise <laughs> Moss, and I was a writer with my partner, uh, Cy Duquesne, for the first three seasons of Murphy Brown. Welcome to the show. Welcome in. We've been talking about having you yes. on for a while, so it's yeah. really exciting for us to finally have you in. Yeah, I had to actually, um, I know you've already told the story about the fact that I mixed up two of the episodes, and I, it is so far back and I've been through so many different shows <laughs> and so many different experiences. So I actually had to go and look on the WGA websites to remind myself which episodes I wrote. Here's the thing. I don't know if you remember. We also confused those two episodes. So you're not the only one who did yeah, that. We did. <laughs> well, the thing is that, and the two episodes were, and so he goes in the unshrinkable Murphy Brown, and they both had deaths in them and after the first season candace started calling us the death writer because <laughs> writers because we tended there was a, something else that had a death theme we really loved writing about death so they kind of went hand in hand now and so he goes just seems like it would be the guy you know having a heart attack on air but the unshrinkable murphy brown was such a perfect title which i believe was my partner's title uh, that you know, how can you how can you change it? Personally, I don't love 
clever titles on TV shows. I think Friends got it right. The one with is so easy. I don't want to spend any time in the room coming up with a title. Oh, there's something interesting about that because I remember Friends was the first time that I paid attention to the the titles as a gimmick, as something to pay attention to. But I remember pulling out the TV guide from our local newspaper and the fact that eventually they got so small that I never knew which one it was because it was always the one and we could never see it. But it is, I'm curious about your thoughts regarding if people notice the titles anymore, because some people are saying that because we don't read the readers, the in, we're not seeing it printed out in front of us anymore on a TV guide or anything like that, that people aren't paying attention to it. However, I would argue that in streaming, it pops up in front of us way more often than I think it used to. It's hard for me to judge because in streaming, I watch so much international television that I'm just trying to keep up with the closed captioning because otherwise I'm not going to figure out, you know, how that screwed up female detective got to that plot point. Yeah, I was streaming. I don't even, I really, if it was number 478, it would just be fine with me. (laughs) But, you know, there was a certain pride in coming up with a really clever title, you know, and it sounds better at the Emmys if anybody ever goes to them again or sees them again. Yeah, They used to mean something. Although, I mean, the most famous Mary Tyler Moore episode which was David Lloyd's, you know, Chuckles the Clown. Everyone says it's a Chuckles episode. I don't even know if that's the title of it. It's Chuckles Bites the Dust. See, there you go. Yeah, I think that's the full title. So, Denise, we we love to talk about someone's origin story first. You can start anywhere you would like. But sort of, you know, your story of yourself as a writer, uh, your influences, and, you know, what brought you to be, you know, maybe your first professional script. Well, I was born about nine pounds, eight ounce, not. Ah, uh, listen. <laughs> wow. Um, I always, it's so funny. I just had a girlfriend here who we literally have reconnected after like 45 years of not seeing each other, but we were the most important friends oh, in our childhood to each other. And we, she, she reminded me that she saw me, I would read to her my stories when I was nine, 10, 11. I did always wrote stories, short stories. So, and I'd read them to her. But my background was that I was going to go into journalism. I went to San Francisco State University where I could craft a uh, major in journalism and uh, broadcasting because they had two really good departments that at that point. So I crafted my own major. They let you do that in those days. And made it through, and then um, coming out of college, had been awarded in college a scholarship that was um, founded for a cameraman who was killed in Guyana in Jonestown, which happened in my high school years. Oh, yeah, I know. I'm going wow. dark here. I go dark, but I'm like, I'm obsessed. I'm Please. obsessed with Jonestown. I've known like seven survivors. I've worked with survivors. I desperately tried to get the book Raven, and now Vince Gilligan has it. Damn him. Denise, this is not the first time Jonestown has been brought up. That's weird. Yeah, that's um, not actually. Why? I welcome you. I welcome you and your interest. I 
I'm obsessed. I was obsessed. Obsessed. So anyway, my when question I got is to though: but Were you obsessed? Oh, sorry. Uh, no, no I was wondering: Were you obsessed before you got the scholarship, or and it was just a crazy yeah, coincidence, yeah. or the scholarship is what? <gasps> wow. In high school, when it happened, I was obsessed with it, and I remember going into my English class and doing an extemporaneous presentation that we were reading *Heart of Darkness*, and. I was, oh. uh, it, and I was drawing the parallels between Heart of Darkness and Jim Jones and what would, had happened mm-hmm. in Guyana. And, and it was so riveting to me and so perplexing. It was, um, you know, the generation before me, you know, had JFK and the generation younger than me had 9-11. I, some reason, Joestown resonated. Yeah, it still does. People keep talking about it. And I'm dark. I like I like that stuff. So it was fascinating to me. So so I had that fascination. And then I the school I went to, I didn't know that the Greg Robinson, who was a photographer, the examiner, was uh, went to San Francisco State, and he died on the airstrip. And uh, Don Harris, who was a reporter in L.A., who I'd watched growing up every day, and he died on the airstrip. And Bob Brown, who was a cameraman who worked for NBC, and he he also perished. And so they had the Bob Brown Scholarship, and I won it for three years in a row. And I said, well, I wrote this really snotty note to Kelly Lang, who was the most famous news person when local news meant something. And I said, you've given me all this money, and it's been fabulous, so why don't you make me work for it and hire me when I get out of college? And nice. nice. Yeah, I had balls. <laughs> so then you're already um, my hero yeah. now I'm afraid to ask my daughter to dust um anyway um <laughs> <Yep>. so <laughs> anyway I went and um I had lunch with her and she put me in touch with NBC News West on the west coast and I interned and then worked there and I worked on the assignment desk sending all these amazing journalists who are, many are still working many are not all over the country all over the world you know, on the West Coast, from the West Coast, um, I would see the, I would take in the feed from, from the Today Show at four in the morning. And it was really old fashioned back then because we had to actually type up the ins and outs of every story. Because if something happened in the three hours between the East Coast airing and the West Coast airing, we had to yeah. exactly put in a different story or update whatever story was there. Of course. It was very, very, I mean, it was stone tablet carving time. It was, you know, we had, (laughs) you know, literally the teletypes that went everything. And I rolled up the paper and everything, but I loved it. But then I saw that the news business was brutal in that I would have to go to 10 markets in 10 years to be a producer or on air and I, I said, I had already moved. I grew up in Toronto. My dad came to California to make it in as a music, as a composer and a, a musician. And eh, successful. But I mean, I went from Toronto knowing how to sword dance in a kilt to living without shoes in Malibu in a trailer. So I, and I was the only person my dad played accordion. Did I have any chance of not being a funny person? Professionally, <laughs> he pay- played it professionally. So I didn't want to do that. Yeah, I didn't want to do that 
That wasn't his main instrument, but he did play it. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> he was a jazz pianist. So, oh, which wow. will come up in the show later. But um, so I, I couldn't do the 10. I just couldn't be on my own like that. I didn't want to be unconnected. And so I was at a loss. And I always was funny. I don't know if people, other people listening to me, who know, he said, oh, I don't think she's funny. But anyway, <laughs> so I decided that, you know, that was going to work. And a friend of mine, it's amazing. And I tell young people this, you know, all the time. You come out, especially now with having gone through COVID. I have a young, I have a 20, young 20s daughter who had to put off life for a year. And you just don't know how life is going to change. You just don't know. So one day I'm talking to somebody at work who said, you know, and it's the 80s, and they say, people are writing scripts all over town, getting a million dollars for them, and they're never made. And I said, hey, that sounds like my kind of job. And they said, and there's this great program up at Stanford being run by a guy who is an, was a former producer. He's in his 70s now. He's a great guy. He produced a lot of famous movies for the studio system. And I applied, and I was wanting to go to a fancy school after scraping through a state school. So I got in, and I did a program at Stanford in film writing. And I was good at it. So I came back to L.A. My parents lived in L.A. There were no jobs. There was nothing for me. And no one was buying my scripts. So I temped, and then I found out that you could temp for Apple Temps in Burbank. Tempt for all the studios. And this is back when one was still a secretary. So I got a temp job at Warner Brothers. I felt lucky to be on the lot. I mean, I felt like walking on the lot was like the most magical thing. And um, I had actually in college been a representative for Columbia Pictures at my college and put on shows and events and things. So I'd been on the lot before. So it was like so cool. And I worked. And then I got hired on as a full-time secretary in the secretary's union, for which I had to take a shorthand test. Oh, and the reason wow. I got hot, yeah. Dang. And the reason I got hired on was because I knew DOS. Remember DOS? Oh, a C prompt. Good for mm-hmm. you. And no, yeah. none of these old guys, and I mean guys, knew how to use a computer. So I was using the computers. I was fixing their computers. I was setting them up. I was telling, showing them how they could press one little thing and it would spell out a name of their characters. Yes. yes. So um, I got those jobs. I compl- I had to take the, the shorthand test twice. I lied the second time. I had memorized it so that I could do it. Yes. <laughs> That's what I would have done. It was stupid. HMO Healthcare. And I was now on the Warner Brothers lot. And I worked for a writer who was on an hour called Scarecrow Mrs. King. Yes. And yes, with Bruce Boxleitner and Kate. I watched the Kate Smith. Kate, no. Kate. Kate. Kate Jackson. Jackson. Yes. I don't know where I pulled that out from, but. And it was really fun because I had met my writing partner. Saidu Kane, who had worked for my boss's ex-partner. And as he always said, I marched up in my little high heels and said, "You, my boss says, you know everything about Warner Brothers and you'll teach me how to do everything here. And he was like, what's this bitch? <laughs> wow, the nuts on this lady. 
And so we didn't particularly like each other, but we liked each other's writing. I was a structuralist. He was great in jokes and dialogue. He was the funniest man. Um, and so we started writing and we wrote half hours and we wrote a night court that Linwood Boomer at night court liked, but it didn't get us anywhere. And then we wrote a gold girls. And then I got a job working for Diane on my sister, Sam. And I didn't really want the production job because it was too much time out of my writing. But then I got the overtime and it was fabulous. And I got to know Diane and I got to know Tom. He was on staff there. And um, Corby, who would take care of the kitten I adopted off the lot. I have a great picture of Corby sitting in her office with her feet up on the Aww. desk and my little kitten on her. It's so Aww. cute. And Diane let us pitch to her for my sister, Sam. And we had been told that when you come in and, and this was back when freelancers, you could actually make a living still freelancing. You'd come in and you'd get a gig. And even if you look through the Murphy Brown things, they're like one-offs of people who came in and sold an episode. Yeah. And the Writers Guild made you do that. Hire two or three writers a year. And that was their training ground. Now the Writers Guild does more on-hands training, more what, how to be on staff, how to show run your first gig. Um, most of those go to assistants. And the assistants, now it is a career path. You become an assistant. Diane read our scripts. She let us pitch. And we were told by a writer who was at one point, I think Corby's partner who was there, said, if you get a chance to pitch, make them throw you out before you run out of ideas. So we took that literally. And we walked in with fully formed ideas. I think we broke it down to ideas all the way down to notions. So you would literally have to throw us out. So Diane liked two of our ideas, but there was only room for one. So we wrote a Murphy Brown. And she said it was in the second season and it didn't go to a third and she said, if there had been a third season, I would have hired you. And I said, well, that's amazing. That's great. Thanks. And it was actually a really good training ground because we wrote six episodes. We wrote three. After that, My Sister Sam, we wrote a couple of other things. And then I worked for Diane during the writer's strike. I went back to being an assistant. I mean, I was still an assistant on the show. And I, I mean, of course, she was just a unbelievable role model for me um she she was like okay you know women can do this women can run shows women can because there wasn't a lot of that going on i mean there was that there was designing women linda bloodworth who i'd met many times for jobs but anyway so the strike stopped murphy brown they were producing it i don't think it gone on the air yet and I so clearly remember sitting down with Cy and writing a letter back when people wrote letters before email to Diane saying, listen, you loved our ideas. You loved our script. I worked in news. You know, that's my background. And I worked at NBC News and I have a lot of stories, a lot of perspective. Please give us a job. We got a call and she said, come on in and pitch. So the first time we went in there, we pitched to this room. And now it was really, really funny because I remember walking in there and everybody was really burned out. And the first season of a show, and I, for some reason, I've done so many first seasons. The first season of a show, 
you have a thinner staff, you're working harder to find the show, you're writing around actors that until you find their voice, until you find what they're really good at, it's really, really hard. And I remember walking into the writer's room and there was a calendar, like a prison calendar with them having marked off the days <laughs> until they were done. And I was like so, in my mid-twenties, I was like so insane. They're on the they're, they're on the most amazing show ever. How could they possibly feel this way? Well, cut to, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, later in my career, it didn't take long for me to have a that same. So they were exhausted. And the hardest part is coming up with new episodes. And we pitched three episodes that Diane loved. Now, they all mutated as they went along. It was like they, and I think Steve Peterman always said, we were so happy that day. Because usually when outsiders came come in and pitch, they're way off. But I'd been there, and I'd seen Diane. I knew what she, her sensibilities were. I knew the news business. And so we pitched three episodes, three areas, and we just came in, and she said, and she got a deal because she didn't put us on staff. We just got the freelance. But... Mm-hmm. But it was a good way to start. And we also sold four other freelance scripts that year. Well, we were surprised, yeah. like really shocked. And the only reason we knew you weren't staffed first season is because we used the Murphy Brown book, um, Anatomy mm-hmm. of a Sitcom, and your bio isn't in it. And that's how we figured it out. And we thought, oh, well, they must have been made staff second season. And then talking to everyone, no. And it didn't make any sense to us considering, one, exactly how well you get the show, two, how many you wrote. So we were quite surprised. There are multiple episodes that we're doing recaps and we're like, still not on staff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not yet. It hasn't happened yeah. yet. We don't know what's going on. Budget reasons, maybe. I'm shocked with your background that it wasn't a given. Like As you're talking about your background, I'm like, yeah, it's a it's a little Murphy. Like It just makes so much sense that you're yeah, writing for and, it. Yeah, and... There was a time, I remember, I mean, this was so Murphy, and the whole secretary thing I saw because I saw Diane's secretaries come and go when I was an assistant on My Sister Sam, and I saw the assistants come and go, and they would be sent from the secretarial writer's pool. Yeah, and when I look back on it, oh my God, we were over the moon because that Christmas I wasn't on staff, and that February, after it aired, and I don't remember it came on in the fall, right? It was instant hit. I'd gone to Colorado to go skiing with my brother. And I came off the plane. And I turned the corner. And it was in the Utah airport. And there on the newsstand was Candace Bergen in her red suit on either Newsweek or Time. And I went, oh, my God, I'm writing for that show. And I'm 26. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I was over the moon. I mean, I couldn't have been, like, happier. And then when I look back and realize that Diane never put us on staff, I thought, what a deal she made. And that's being a smart showrunner. That's just being a smart showrunner. You couldn't get away with it today, but you know what? You'd put me inside on staff as a staff writer, and the way it's worked out, I'd make less money than if I got paid for my episodes because you don't get paid for your episodes if you're a staff writer and you don't get residuals. So Mm -hmm. thank you, Diane. 
the residuals have been nice over the years. So that's how we started. And um, the three episodes were, the first one was And So He Goes, which was the Jack Cowan having to give a eulogy for someone she hated, Moscow and the Potomac. And I have no idea where some of these ideas came from because Cy and I had a system we take very, I lived in Santa Monica, 28 blocks from the beach because I lived on 28th Street and we'd walk to the beach and back pitching ideas out. So I have no idea. But the unshrinkable comes right out of Candace's life. And I don't know if anybody's ever mentioned this. We have, but we'd love to hear it from you. Well, Cy was beyond enamored of Candace. Cy, my partner, was a expert in the Oscars. He'd clean up in Oscar pools. Like, like oh. my husband can tell you every statistics for the Lakers going back to, you know, 1965, maybe earlier. He would rattle off who won, who was nominated for costume design in 1933. Um, and movie stars were his thing, and we both loved movies, and we both loved David Lean, and we both loved deep stuff, and... And so he had read Candace's book where she talked about interviewing Oscar Levant and going up the stairs and finding him dead. From that idea, we came with the idea, well, what if she grilled somebody so hard on TV that he died on TV? So good. It's a great concept. And it was a really good idea. And I think we pitched the idea that um, she loses her edge. But I'm not sure we came up with the therapy idea or the ending. I know um, her buying Girl Scout cookies was something we came in with. Because when Diane, <laughs> Diane was a great training ground. She was tough. When you came in, you had to pitch the whole story to the whole room. You'd say, okay, we're going to do that one. You go off and you make write the story. See where your story, you take, see where you take it and come back two weeks or a week or whatever and see what you got. And then the room would just kind of dive in. And uh, <clears throat> and come with it. So I think when we walked in, we had the idea that she'd lost her edge and she was buying Girl Scout cookies. And I mean, it is amazing. I know people uh, who are who are writing, who pay to get into rooms like that for training. You know, and the idea that you're getting paid and you get to work with that kind of training ground is unheard of yep. nowadays. People make pay their rent off of doing that for writers. It's unbelievable. I would be curious to know, how, how do you feel that your journalism experience added to the room? Um, I thought it was great. I mean, you know, ultimately, I'm not even sure if my journalism experience meant that much. Except that I kind of, because I'd been in different realms of it. Um, but yeah, there were places that, that it came up that I did have specific experiences that I could bring into the room. But also, it was a sitcom. And I get, uh, I mean, I get stuck on verisimilitude. So sometimes that didn't help. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. I could see that also, though, in a confidence, coming from a place of confidence to write for for these characters that are, uh, the original concept of these characters are coming from somebody else's mind, but you seem to come in with a confidence to speak from those characters' points of view that I'm not sure a lot of young freelance writers would have felt. Yeah, it, I was, and to learn Diane's training. I mean, she, I'm sure you've heard this before, but she said, these are people who talk a lot. So don't write, <laughs> write short little sentences for them. 
And um, that suited me a lot in terms of how I, I like to write. Um, and, you know, as we've all talked, I mean, we all a little bit of, we all have a little bit of wishing we were Murphy, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember when I was working for Diane as assistant, I was talking to my mom on the phone and Diane came and asked me, do you got a sec? I said, okay, just a second. And I just had, you know, three more exchanges with my mom. And I came in and she was having a hell of a time with her computer. And she was like, a little mad at me as assistant. And I said, well, Diane, if it was this bad, you should have told me. I would have dropped everything. Tell me. <laughs> I just had such balls. It was ridiculous. My husband said, always tell the story of how you got your first agent, which was when I was working on, which didn't get me the job and never does. But I was working for this producer on, on the hour show on Scarecrow and agents would come in back in the day and deliver the script. This is a new writer. I'd like your boss to read him. And so I had like a stack of my own scripts underneath. And I'd say, well, maybe I can get this to my boss if you'll read this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a little tit for tat. Um, you know, so that's kind of how I, I got my first agent. Not that he helped me get the gig but anyway so yeah so uh, after the unshrinkable which really I love the structure of that because it goes through it changes and that, that's one of the structural things that Diane really taught me was to to start a story and to take it in the direction you don't expect to take a guy dropping dead on camera which was directed so well and was so funny and was milked for every bit of laughter. I mean, him just drooping, drooping <laughs> out of frame. And to suddenly, by the end, you're in group therapy with her. You just don't see the turns coming. And what got interesting about writing television as the years went by is that our time for our shows got smaller and smaller because the advertising window got bigger and bigger. So like when I wrote Murphy, it was, we had like, and the, obviously the pilot went over the first time, but you know, we had 26 minutes, 27 minutes, you know, we had 22 minutes by the end and not having, yeah. having losing six minutes in a sitcom means there's a story development you can no longer take. Yeah, absolutely. And character. Character goes out the window. Yeah. Especially when your characters are verbose. <laughs> yeah. So you couldn't write verbose. And then the friend style of quick, short scenes, poppy back and forth became the style. You know, the shows that I grew up that I loved were like Taxi um, and the original Newhart show and the, these stories that bent. And Diane was always big on, you know, taking a story somewhere that you didn't expect it to go. Yeah, no, we talk about that a lot, that, you know, many of these episodes, because, you know, it was something that meant a lot to us in childhood, that we've watched a lot of them many times, although we mm -hmm. haven't seen them a lot recently. And sometimes even if we know where it's going, it surprises us, or we forgot where it went, even though we used to, you know, have it memorized, because it is surprising, and that's mm -hmm. what makes it mm -hmm. more enjoyable. And I would also say from a, from a performance standpoint, so I... 
as our audience knows, I just uh, graduated from my graduate program. And one of the things that you do at the end is you put together a graduate showcase. And so my scene partner and I really wanted to do comedy. And as we were looking for comedy scripts, we kept going back to 80s and early 90s sitcoms because the scenes are better. The opportunity to act, the opportunity to have an arc within a single scene that's quick and interesting was far more plentiful than looking at anything currently happening. Some things that now that we have streaming are allowing a little more time and we're able to get massage things, but a bunch of people kept giving us things from that turn of the century, which is so weird to say, but from the turn of the century sitcoms are like, they're just, there's no scene here. I, I, I don't have time to establish anything. We're, we're this, the funny is based on gag that we can't count on in this particular thing. And so going back, I sent him so many Murphy Brown scripts. <laughs> the poor guy's like, I get it. You want to play Murphy. The character, other character isn't me. Right. <laughs> and you, and the, you'd also, and even Murphy, we, we didn't always push for jokes. I mean, another show that, that I happen to have done a year on, uh, Roseanne at the time, you know, we didn't have to end our scene, you know, our act breaks on uh, on a big laugh line or a big scene. And we didn't have to push for the jokes. And for me, it was the silences that build to comedy. It's not what's being said and suddenly it comes out of nowhere that you just don't expect it. But the time crunch killed the sitcom because um, you can't build character. I agree. And yeah. like right now, I'm... I'm Watching uh, our the comedy with Gene Smart in it uh, that's on uh, Hacks. Fantastic. Hacks. Oh, so good. so good. So good. So good. Because they're allowing the characters to grow. And one of the things I loved about Diane, there was a, she would let character moments happen, even if there wasn't a giant laugh. I remember... And I can't even remember the context of it. I had a joke in a script about having memorized all the Reagan indictments or something about that wasn't getting a big laugh, but she loved the thought. So she said, I'm not cutting it. I just love the thought. You know, she, she would let the characters build. I think that's what's really killed sitcom. And I, I would also say, you know, we, you, we made the joke with you at the beginning that you, uh, you, two were the death writers yeah. at first, which was wonderful. And it's some of my favorite work in those early seasons is because, and the thing we talk about a lot is the use of the concept of dramedy mm -hmm. in Murphy mm -hmm. is that the reason you keep watching is that yes, we have the laughs, but also we have these moments where a lot of times the laughter is coming out of the fact that you need to laugh, not because we're trying to make you laugh and seeing the humanity gives us that opportunity to rest in between and go through a journey with them as opposed to just like waiting Waiting to right. right. And and there were shows, I mean, they're different. They certainly wouldn't work for season work, but I, you know, friends let things rest. I mean, it was very emotional, mm -hmm. you know, and, and there were other shows, I think, that have really let things rest, but they also let characters build. You didn't have to know everything about a character the first time you see them and the first five minutes that you see them. There can be payoff through an arc. And being so, and being surprised by these characters, and there was also the likability issue, because suddenly, well, in the '90s, we all the other thing that killed the sitcom was once Friends was successful, 
they didn't want anybody over the age of 35 or over the age of 25 on, on, yeah. in a sitcom. And it was a disaster, you know, because then we just got a lot of friends rip off. You know, when I look at Hacks and I, and I look at the Jean Smart character, I mean, she is kind of like another Murphy Brown character. She's, she speaks her mind. She yes. is, she's politically incorrect in a different way. Um, and I, and I'm not sure you could do that today either, but you can on Hacks. It's great. It's so funny. Yeah. And she's vulnerable. You know, she's a fully fledged human and has different relationships with different people. She's not just, you know, the bitch or mm-hmm. hard to work with. Yep. You know, you see the way that she treats other people, mm-hmm. you know, from the people who work, work for her at her house to um, even moments with her daughter mm-hmm. when they are good. Yes. And that makes you like her because it's not that she's just one noted. It, that's the one thing that really took me about the show was I could I felt for her as a character because of how she yeah. treated other people, even if she didn't treat certain people well. She did. She treated other people well. And she well. does. And mm-hmm. um, and the rest of us who aren't millennials love to see the millennial learn a couple of things. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, heck, I like seeing Gen Z learn a couple things. I'm all about learning. Yeah, Let's exactly. Learn. <laughs> Let's learn something. But that's what's sort of great about it is that usually, you know, certain shows would, it would be one or the other, right? It would be either mocking boomers mm-hmm. or mocking Gen Z. And Ugh. this one has such a level of both that it doesn't feel like mocking. It just feels mm-hmm. like people living. And that's something yeah. else I love about it, too. Yeah. And they both have attributes. It's also great to see Jane Smart. Oh, she, she's just wonderful. That, too. Yeah. I love her so much. You made me think of something when you were saying nobody wants to see someone over 25, or at least someone who appears under 25, uh, which has led into so many wonderful beauty trends. But uh, something that you made me think of was, I remember what felt like the extreme rebellion of a show that involves a crossover of multiple shows you have worked on, which was Hot in Cleveland Mm -hmm. with Jane Leaves. And when that show came out, it felt like such a feminine middle finger to this idea of what the leads in a and especially a female-driven comedy was at the time. Yeah. I just love, Jane has made her way through my entire life. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, it that that was su- such a great concept. And, and it is such a middle finger. Mm-hmm. And um, But you had three really great actresses. Really terrific. And a very funny concept, mm-hmm. you know. Well, four, actually, I should say. And a really clear, funny concept. And I really enjoyed it. And we're talking too much. We're not talking about Murphy. So what else can I tell you? So we got on in the second season. Well, I, I'd love to know. Yeah. Like, how, how did that? Obviously, there are big changes for you when you get put on staff. But like, how creatively did that change? Well, for you? the first thing was that I because we had written three Murphy Browns and it was so hot from its first season, we were getting other offers and our agent got a better offer on my two dads. A Michael Jacobs show. Mm-hmm. We we are fans. <laughs> yep. yeah, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Well, that was, well that you was, grew up with it. Yep. That's the thing, you, yes. Yeah, I mean, I grew up with things, too. I also watched ALF. I'm not saying that I had the best oh, taste I when I was Elf, 11. Yeah. <laughs> I loved ALF. I learned my taste based on watching all of it. <laughs> yes, you had to. And I'd bewitched, which, you know, I couldn't get more sexist than that. Oh, yeah. Um. So anyway, our agent was for, it, Michael Jacobs was a client. So he was offering us more weekly 
and he wanted us to come on immediately. And Diane was, and we said no. And our agent threw a fit. I said, there's no future in My Two Dads, and Murphy Brown is the hottest show, and we don't want to write My Two Dads, but it's more money. I said, no, we don't want to write it. So we went on on, on Murphy, on staff. And it was a nice, soft landing because Diane, you know, never stopped being an English teacher. She um, had rules and regulations, and one of her rules was that when you're new and on staff, you're going to not be on the table every night. So we had Monday nights off. What we would do, and they weren't Monday nights off, we would have to, and this would be so foreign to any staff now, and probably the writers would complain and call their agent and sue her. I don't know what. be ridiculous, but it was, I think, a good training ground. Because she liked a really small room, and she didn't like to hear many voices, and I like a really small room. I don't like to have 16 people on staff. I don't like more than five people in a room at a time, frankly. I can't process quickly enough. Um, so we would go after the run-through on Mondays. We'd see a run-through, full run-through. And we would go to our office. And Cy and I would have to write in a script pitches and cuts just ourselves. And there were many a night that I heard, and then we would spend a couple hours doing that, and then we're free, and we'd turn it in. And then we were on staff for all the other run-throughs and on stage and pitching, whatever. But I heard that many a night, they wouldn't have a joke, or they wouldn't have a cut, and they'd reach for us, ours, and it was there. It wasn't a lot. I mean, I don't know if it was a lot or not. I can't remember, but, but it was, we wanted to get our jokes into the script and we didn't want to embarrass ourselves. So that's what we did. And, um, it was hard. It was hard, but it, it put our feet to the fire. And, um, it was a really good way to be, to learn how to write that. And I mean, I wasn't trained in writing jokes. I was trained in writing character, but I wasn't. So it was really good. I was going to say the next morning when we got our script, first thing we do is go through it and see, is there any of our stuff there? Because we were, you know, vain and egotistical and childish. I would do it today. You have gumption. That's all. Yeah. I am curious because mm-hmm. you said that you, I wasn't trained to be a joke writer. You had said earlier about you being the structuralist and Sai being mm-hmm. more of the joke factory. Um, I'm curious about just more so about that dynamic in general. We love hearing from the partners about how they work together, but also for you going from freelance writing together versus being partners on staff together, how that dynamic fit in. Well, because we still wrote our scripts the same way, it was the same process. You came in, you pitched ideas, you got an idea, you pitched out a story, uh, you went and wrote, uh, you know, then you beat out the story with Diane in the room, and then you wrote an outline. So in that terms of that dynamic, um, that nothing really changed differently. Um, and I, that's what I love because I went on, when I went on to Roseanne, you know, it was all gang written. It was basically, you wrote a, went off and wrote a script, but then it came back and it was like a page one rewrite. And I had never experienced that. 
And um, a lot of places are like that. And the last show I was on, sadly, I had to run the room and do that to the writers. I just, I didn't like it. Uh, it's it's really uncomfortable. Um, and you try to do it as gently as possible. But that's how they train now. That's how you, when, with Diane, we were ahead of the game enough that we could write two drafts. And it, she would give you, in fact, Sai, I, I saw Sai recently, and he gave me a bag full of stuff he had. And one of it was a script with Diane scribbled notes in it, which was really kind of cool. Um, and she was like an English teacher with a red pen. She'd give you those <laughs> notes, and you'd work really hard and try to please her. I mean, nothing felt as good in the room if you pitch a joke and Diane left. Oh, my God. It just felt so good. How often did that happen? E- she wasn't easy, but she was a good laugher. Cool. She was a really good laugher. Yeah, there was no better feeling. Oh, I made mom happy. Mom finally loves me. The hole in my soul has been healed. It's so funny. That <laughs> vibe still comes through when we talk to writers from the mm-hmm. show. It's still there. You can hear it in everyone's voices when they talk about it. Oh, I think the boys, re- the boys, I always call them the boys, the boys. I think we're even more scared of her than than I was. <laughs> I mean, for the longest time, I was, I was the only other one. Sta- be, well, no, that's true. It was Corby. But she was also, a, you know, a little bit of a uh, intimidating figure because she was so smart and funny. But yeah, of of the staff next, I, I was the girl. So that dynamic, the only thing we did, we kind of discovered is that Sai had a really, really quirky uh, sensibility and would pitch just off the wall shit that Diane loved. And she started calling it the mind of Sai. Cool. I mean, his type of stuff was like, I think in... Uh, I don't know what the joke was, but the punchline was, she's on a rope. And I don't know where that came from. That sounds familiar, actually. You know, like, you know, there's a soap on a rope and she's on a rope. You're also not the only writer who we've spoken to who has referred to Diane's English teacher background and how mm-hmm. it served her well in the room. So that's, it's interesting that you, you know, absent from from them are also bringing that up. Yeah. Well, the, the the harder part, too, was that when she wasn't happy with your work, um, she was also the stern English teacher. That got, you know, you did not want her to be going with your script, just going through the pages, going, mm-mm, mm-mm. But what I discovered later about Hollywood, because it was such a great training ground, it equipped me for nothing. Because what I discovered later on is that all my bosses were passive-aggressive. So... <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know where you stood. Yeah. And and then you'd get, you know, gunny sacked. <laughs> but she was always up front. You either knew you made her happy or you didn't. Join us for part two. <laughs>